0: I'm Cinder Niemela, and along with Charlotte Gilmano, welcome to the Inspired Wisdom Podcast. I believe the most powerful gifts you can give yourself is time to reflect on your talents and experience, and then have the wisdom to act with confidence and grace. This podcast is for entrepreneurs, leaders, and individuals who want to thrive in work and life. Your journey to being connected and inspired by the world around you starts right now. Hi, my name is Cinder Niemela. We all have those moments when we are just out of sorts. You know, unsure of what I wanna do with my life, but I know I want a successful and fulfilling career. Wanting more clarity on how to get from where I am to there or questioning my beliefs or decisions I made in the past or should make now. My guest today is Greg Lavoie. Greg is the author of two books, Callings, Finding and Following an Authentic Life, and Vital Signs, Discovering and Sustaining Your Passion for Life. Published in 1997, Callings was the first book to examine the many kinds of calls we receive. Callings is a passionate look at our natural search for authenticity. You may be called to do something or be something, like more creative, authentic, or more confident as a leader. During my interview with Greg, he talks about the different forms and channels we receive calls, how to recognize and respond to them, to create a life that really belongs to you, and you thrive. A former adjunct professor of journalism at the University of New Mexico, Greg has written for the New York Times Magazine, Washington Post, Psychology Today, Fast Company, Omni, and many others, as well as for corporate and television projects. Please visit inspiredwisdom.us for links and additional information on my interview with Greg Lavoie. Greg, welcome to the call.
1: My pleasure. Delighted to be here.
0: You have a great presence out in the web. Oh, thank you. I especially love the story that you told about your mom. Oh. Why don't you share that story with us first?
1: Oh, boy. Well, this one comes under the heading of explaining to some degree why I have a personal interest in the subject of passion, which is really, in a sense, the the topic of both of my recent books I had a conversation with my mother some years ago that really clarified for me what had happened to her. She was a woman who has had a tremendous amount of life force and energy and chutzpah. And she, after she retired, she just started swirling the drain and pretty much stayed in that position for the rest of her life, for the next 20 or 22 years of her life. And uh, I just simply didn't understand what happened to her or for that matter, what happens to anybody's sense of vitality over the course of time, until I had that one conversation with her where she very uncharacteristically asked me what I thought she should do with her time now that she'd retired. And um, I think she'd been looking for a sense of purpose ever since. And I kept making suggestions, and she kept shooting them out of the sky, one after another after another. Um, Why don't you take some art classes? Uh, Oh, I did that already. Um, Why don't you um, take one of those music appreciation courses at the university that'll take you on field trips to the symphony and the opera because she wasn't driving anymore. And she said, oh, those are for old people. (laughs) And uh, why don't you take a trip? And she just shrugged. Why don't you volunteer with SCORE? You Mm -hmm. know, Service Corps of Retired Executives. And she said, um, what are you kidding? Volunteering? That counts for absolutely nothing on a resume, she said. And I said, Mom, you're 82 years old. Are you still building your resume? Mm. No. Are you still climbing the ladder? And I think what through this conversation it crystallized for me that um, you can't save somebody from themselves, for one thing. Mm -hmm. You can't undo the kind of spells that people tend to put on themselves. Um, Even if you're like me, you're Mr. Callings, And, you know, your own mother is kind of throwing your game all off. And so it really clarified for me that um, it's a choice that people make to either hang on to their life force and their vitality and their sense of purpose and contribution, or they don't. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: uh, this is not something you can undo for somebody else.
0: Yeah, it, it really uh, struck me. I think perhaps we all know someone where that's happened, that retire means you know prepare for death. Right. <laughs> uh, and you, yeah, you do lose that sense of purpose and passion. What year was that that you had the conversation with her or that oh, you started to see her decline?
1: Oh, I would say it was probably, I would say six or seven years ago. This was in the Vital Signs book, which came out in ninety. I'm sorry, not 95, 2015.
0: So what inspired you to write Callings?
1: I ran across an Italian writer some years ago. I'd never heard of him. His name is Alberto Moravia. And he said that he thought it was important in life to pursue what he called the one problem you were born to understand. And I think... The basis of that book is one of them for me, and that is how do you create a life that really belongs to you, and isn't um, a hand-me-down or a knockoff, um, you know, that really has some power and passion to it. And I think, in a sense, that propelled all of the the, research, the searching and researching I did for that book, um, as well as my own life, is how do I create a life that really has a sense of purpose and direction and really utilizes the skills that I was given when I came into this game? Mm-hmm. And, um, and there were some very specific challenges that led up to that book, uh, to writing that book. But I would say in a general sense, it probably came from that, as well as growing up in a family where neither one of my parents, in my humble opinion, did what they really wanted to do with their lives. And so, you know, as, as you grow up, you watch your parents struggling with that, those kind of choices. And it really got under my skin um, that neither one of them really did what their great passions and, if, and even callings were. And I think that was another one of the genesis of the of that book.
0: Oh, that's very interesting. Thank you for that. And callings, you know, we often think, or I think when I think of a calling is it's, it's our reason for being, you know, like Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King, or Pavarotti, as you talk about right. in your book as well, that there's some supreme talent with supreme obstacles and challenges that follow. Uh, but you break it down to us in a much more pragmatic way. Right. So tell us about how you define a calling.
1: Well, uh, first of all, I I don't think of it as a singular uh, entity. Um, And in fact, I've seen so many people in my line of work waiting and waiting for the great big calling, you know, the vocational burning bush. And I think they miss a lot of the smaller ones that are kind of right at their feet. And so I think of callings as plural, certainly secular but plural, these are the urgings and the promptings and even the imperatives that come from deep inside each one of our lives that tell us what it's going to take at any point along the continuum that tell us what it's going to take to stay true to true north. So an intuition is a calling. A a dream is a calling, a body symptom, a synchronicity. Uh, The section of the bookstore you always go into first when you walk into a bookstore Uh, Song lyrics you can't get out of your head for weeks. All of these things, in my opinion, are callings. They're calls from the deep self that tell us to pay attention to something. And I think, in a sense, they're the fire drills for the bigger ones.
0: Mm, Okay. And in a couple of your videos online, you mentioned that sometimes we ignore them. (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh i don't know if it's sometimes i think it's almost always in fact you know one of the one of my heroes in this line of work is joseph campbell the mythologist who popularized the hero's journey mm-hmm. uh, and the bumper sticker follow your bliss mm-hmm. uh, he he said uh phase one of responding to a calling is ignoring it <laughs> that's so the, uh, phase one is literally the call phase two is of what he calls the refusal of the call. And it's absolutely universal and inevitable. And I say this partly by way of, you know, if, it, if it's any consolation to those who might be um, feeling like they're avoiding a call, this is natural. This is kind of stage one. Stage one might last for 10 years, but it's still stage one of saying no, because by definition, a calling is gonna rock the boat. That's its job description, in fact, is literally to call people away from the status quo. Um, mm-hmm. I went to um, Morocco for a month, a couple of years back. It's the first time I'd ever been to a Muslim country. And I, five times a day, the criers up on top of the minarets literally call people uh, to prayer. And what they're doing is they're calling you away from the daily grind, whatever that is, uh, you know, tending the mules or making copper pots or... Um, you know, coming up with the next killer app. Whatever your, your sort of day job is, the call is to turn your back literally on the status quo, face toward Mecca to pray, you know, or face toward whatever is sacred in yourself or whatever is deeper or higher than yourself. And that's, that's the point of a call. So it rocks the boat. It makes sense that people would want to run from it.
0: Give us a practical example from your own life. A call that you've had and you ignored it.
1: Oh, my God. Okay. Uh, I think one of the ones that was instrumental in me writing the Callings book, I was working at the Cincinnati Enquirer as a young reporter. This is back in my 20s. And for roughly half the decade that I was at that paper, I kept hearing a call to quit and become a freelance writer. But I ignored it for five years. I ignored that call. Because it was scary stuff, and anybody who might be listening to this who's ever either contemplated self-employment or been self-employed knows that this requires that you let go of some very deep and culturally ingrained familiarities, like the mindset that are working for somebody else, which 90% of Americans do. Only 10% are self-employed. Attitudes toward discipline and self-management. Attitudes toward, you know, your very definition of success. So to say nothing of leaving behind a regular paycheck Mm -hmm. and a pension that I had coming in two years so I could hang in there, um, which I could not. um, Medical benefits, um, you know, giving up the prestige of being a big fish in a good-sized pond, all of this. So what I did to avoid that calling was I came up with a very elaborate form of avoidance, which eventually caught up with me, as they usually do, um, which is that I lobbied really hard to get hired at the new newspaper that the company that I worked for, Gannett, was starting up in Washington, DC, called USA Today. And I got hired. I lobbied hard and I got hired. They took a hundred reporters from about that many of their newspapers, bought an apartment building in Roslyn, Virginia, and put us to work on the startup of USA Today. And the deal was four month trial period for everybody. If you fit and the paper flies, you become a journalist in Washington, DC. And if you don't fit, where the paper doesn't fly, you are guaranteed your job back at whatever paper we took you from. Wow. You don't get a more <laughs> elegant job offer, right, than this? Yeah. And um, I lasted three months because it was a lousy match. I'm a, I'm a feature-style writer. I'm an essay-style writer. And USA Today was reviewed by the Washington Post when it was first born. They referred to it as News McNuggets. So it was a terrible match and they were tearing my long stylistic pieces to shreds. And I refused to acknowledge how unhappy I was there because I wanted out of Cincinnati, I wanted a national paper rather than a regional paper. And I ignored a whole set of signals. And this is maybe my my point to anybody else, that this, this is not just my story is, you have to pay attention to the signs and the signals in your life and what they're pointing you toward because they're all there in your service. And some of the signals that I was completely ignoring while I was at the newspaper was, for instance, my inability to stay awake at that job. Literally, I was falling asleep (laughs) on the job, uh, propping my head up on a stack of books that I was using as a pillow. I was completely ignoring my dream life. And I've kept dream journals since high school. And weirdly enough, I faithfully recorded the dreams in my journals, but very uncharacteristically, I I completely ignored the task of interpreting them. Mm -hmm. Because I think at some level, I didn't want to really know what they had to tell me. Mm -hmm. You know, which is another way of saying I knew what they had to tell me. I just didn't really want to know. And the dreams were just crazy obvious when I looked back on it, losing my wallet with all of my identification cards in it, my sense of identity, um, being invited to the boss's fancy pool party, but the pool was empty, finding a golden calf chained to the ground. Oh my gosh. I mean, what that is is what the the Israelites were worshiping before God pitched a fit and represents the pursuit of shallow materialism. Mm -hmm. And the dreams were that obvious. And then there was one more set of signals, which is, and a lot of people will probably relate to this, there's a whole universe of behaviors that you engage in when you don't like your work, or or it's a lousy match. And this included, and I was doing all of these, coming into work late, leaving work early, extra long lunches, constant clock watching, indiscriminate waste of supplies, talking to friends in Hawaii on company time and you know like sick days i came back from with a tan here's the thing i lost that job it was the one and only job i have ever been fired from uh it came as a complete shock to me it came
0: as a shock when you were fired
1: complete shock yeah Uh, despite the fact that i was falling asleep on the job and having all these dreams and acting like I did in my senior year in high school. I'm, psychologically, I'm halfway out the door. I'm just punching in Monday through Friday to get the, the, the paycheck, the diploma. And that should not have come as a surprise to me, but it only did because I wasn't paying attention.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I would say, for me, the moral of the story is I, I have to be willing to turn on the receivers and hear what I hear. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the calls? What are the signs? pointing to what I really need to be doing. You just need to be willing to turn on those receivers and hear your marching orders. I I just didn't understand at all until I started going back through my journals and looking at the dreams that I had written down uh, until my boss said, your colleagues have been finding you fast asleep at your desk with some regularity. And I didn't even make the connection. I thought I was tired or having allergies or something. So, no, I think it was genuinely a shock.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: but I think maybe partly what you're referring to is the struggle. I think it's one of the primary struggles in people's relationship to their own um, vitality, if, if not their vocation. And that's the struggle between uh, passion and security. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that's just something that people kind of need to look at in their own lives is what are those two voices saying? And my own experience and the experience of the people that I've interviewed is that in the contest between those two forces, security has a tendency to win. Mm -hmm. And people will do almost anything to keep the paycheck coming and keep the medical benefits coming. And never mind that the only reason they're probably using those medical benefits is their job is making them sick.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, but um, to, to really look at both of these voices and let them talk to one another. What does passion have to say to security and security have to say to passion? And literally just write a dialogue between them on your computer. Mm. and Listen to what the two voices have to say, because it's fascinating when you let them have at it for a half an hour without taking your fingers off the keyboard. And let them dialogue with one another there. It's fascinating what can come out of that.
0: That is, that's a great exercise. And again, you're illustrating your ability, your, your great talent for telling stories and for bringing it down to earth and making it pragmatic for people. After you left USA Today, is that when you
1: launched your career? As a... uh, um, No, that's when I launched the preparation for the career. I came back and, you know, here's the beauty of wake-up calls. They sometimes wake you up. I went back with a kind of um, determination and cussedness that I didn't have before the loss of the job at USA Today. It helped to clarify things for me. And I realized, okay, I really want to get out now. But I'm this whole thing at USA Today, like I said, was a form of avoidance
0: mm-hmm.
1: that had simply caught up with me. And I realized... What I've been avoiding is the call to be a freelance writer. That's what I really want to do. I don't just want to get out of Cincinnati. I don't, I don't just want to make a lateral move. And so I came home and I made a promise to myself. I'm going to take one year of Thursday nights and I'm going to become a student of the life I want to live. Hmm. I'm going to study the freelance life. And so from six to nine o'clock on Thursday nights after work and after taking myself out to dinner, just as an incentive reward sort of a thing. And and I mean, out to dinner at a restaurant with tablecloths. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted wanted it to be a reward. (laughs) (laughs) So I, uh, I went to the public library from six to nine when it closed and I studied the freelance life. And I wrote stories and I pitched editors and I, and this is key. I conducted informational interviews with freelancers of all different stripes, not just writers. Um, And I, as it were, picked their brains. How did you get into it? How long did it take? Um, How did you prepare? Uh, What do you like about it? What do you hate about it? Um, What do you wish somebody had told you? Uh, And one of the things I asked them is how much money did you have in the bank before you jumped? And every one of those people said they had about two years worth of savings in the bank, which was a bummer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't have that kind of money in the bank. And what it made me do was extend that one year deadline another year. Mm-hmm. Now two years is a long time to be doing something when you'd rather be doing something else but, you know, hell, it's not 20. The two years that I spent preparing for, you know, frankly, the rigors of freelance writing really helped me so that when I leapt, I leapt into work. I did not leap into an abyss. And I didn't leap out of desperation, though I felt desperate when I came back from USA Today.
0: Well, did you have an idea of what you were going to write when you left?
1: Yes, I did. I knew that the the niche that I really wanted, it's a very big niche, was innovation. Mm. Because I knew that editors love stories of innovation in any and every field, and I I sensed that I could make a living at it. Um, And I also moved out to San Francisco, which to me was to the field of innovation what Nashville is to country music, you know, or Mm -hmm. Detroit is to the car industry. And so that, that those were the s- stories I was writing about when I finally left 2 years later for San Francisco and started a freelance career.
0: And so what year was that?
1: That would have been 1984.
0: 1984. Okay, so you still have another 13 years or so before you write before you publish the book Callings. Yes. And how is it that you came to that topic?
1: I was in the habit of every half a dozen years or so rereading all of my journals that means taking essentially a life retrospective and it it's a, it was a task that typically took months and months to do of course because I had journals going back to high school but I would take a complete inventory of my life and see the patterns and see the messages and the the calls and the all of that and after doing that Somewhere right in the middle of my freelance career in those 12 or 13 years, I realized that one of the things I had done regularly throughout my life, sometimes kicking and screaming, was follow my callings. And because the whole move out to San Francisco was such a primary example of it, I realized, you know, there's something in here that would be of service to other people. It's like my story and the stories of people that I could interview would be of service, is what is a calling and how do you follow it? And what hits the fan when you do? And what hits the fan when you don't? So I was right in the middle of there and after one of those big life inventory experiences that I realized that there was material in there.
0: When you do a lot of research, it's a great book for looking at the whole landscape of callings and Mm -hmm. purpose. So we've mentioned calling several times I don't know that we've actually listed what all of them are with examples.
1: Perhaps you could could go through that. I alluded to a couple of them when I said things like um, intuitions and passions and dreams. Dreams are definitely one of the, the, the ways that calls come to us. I have an entire chapter in the book called The Language of the Body because the word symptom means a sign. That's actually the etymology of the word. Uh, a sign of what? Uh, the word pathology means the logic of pain. So mm-hmm. what's, what's the logic? And there was a guy that I interviewed for that named Arnold Mindell for that chapter. He started something called process-oriented psychology. And he's a brilliant body-mind guy. And he said, symptoms are usually dreams trying to come true. And I'd never heard anything remotely like that before. But then when I started looking at my own body and talking to other people, I realized how much truth there was in that remark. So what you might do is identify some recurring symptom in your body, just anything that has your attention at the moment, and give it a voice and let it fill in the blank. So this would be the symptom talking to you saying, my dream is that you would and fill in the blank. So symptoms are one of the ways that calls try to make their way to us. The patterns in your life are another channel through which calls make their way to you. So a lesson you've endlessly had to learn, a kind of mistake you continually make, um, getting fired again, a section of the bookstore you always spend the most amount of time in when you're in a bookstore, patterns, there's, there are callings embedded in there. I would say wherever there's friction in your life is another place where callings kind of come up to the surface. I mean, in the same way that in the natural world, friction happens where changes are trying to take place. Mm -hmm. So where does head argue with heart in your life? Where does walk not match talk? Where does passion rub up against security? Wherever there's friction, where do you fight with people? What do you fight about mostly when you fight with other people? There are callings in there. It requires that you turn on all these little receivers and be willing to receive the information that's in there, as opposed to distracting yourself with any of the multitudes of weapons of mass distraction that the culture specializes in, you know, workaholism or addiction or television or social media or whatever. There's lots of ways of distracting yourself from what your life is calling for from you. Mm-hmm. But the word distraction, I would add, means to be pulled apart.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Something to that. Yeah,
0: that's interesting. Totally makes sense. And that's what we try to do. We just cover up what we intuitively know, yeah. what we sense, what we're called to, with oh just more noise and busy, busyness.
1: Right. And uh, it doesn't, I don't think it does the trick, ultimately. It, it does in the short term. But the, the beauty and the curse of calls... Is that they will try to pop through into the last possible minute of life. It's just their nature. The search party is not going to retire. Callings will turn into wake-up calls. It's just their nature. It, the, they start off, you know, as polite whispers, mm-hmm. you know, gentle taps on the shoulder. They start off that way, but they turn to, to sh- shoving and shouting the longer you ignore them.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, like Sound it, it sounds very familiar. Uh, it sounds very familiar. Yeah. It could be a divorce or a firing or you know just something big that just says you're going in the wrong direction and you're going more quickly in the wrong direction.
1: Stop now. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> and uh, you know ideally we kind of want to get ahead of that curve and make changes rather than them making us.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love the passion that you bring to this topic. And I know you do a lot of workshops and you have been for years. Hmm. What are some things that people take away from the workshops?
1: Well, um, a couple of things pop into my mind. One of them is just simply clarity. And that's really what I want more than anything for the people who show up in my workshops is just to walk away with some clarity about what, in fact, the signs and signals in their life are pointing toward. Um, And I do that, you know, through the same tool that I've used as a reporter for my entire career. I ask nosy personal questions. (laughs) (laughs) And we, you know, as it were, we connect the dots. So clarity seems to be something that people walk away with at least a sense of, what it is that they really feel called to do. Another thing that I I love watching is I like to demonstrate the role that community plays in the unfolding of an individual's sense of calling. Because you you, you alone are called, but that doesn't mean you've got to figure it out all by yourself. And so what I love to demonstrate through just a brainstorming group brainstorming exercise is the the incredible role that community can play in helping you clarify and gain momentum. And so we just ask for a volunteer who wants to state it in the, the, the way that it's stated in brainstorming is in how many ways can I, you know, market my services, make a living doing what I love, get out of my own damn way, whatever and then the group brainstorms for them and they walk away with 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 ideas generated on the spot. And I love watching what happens to that focal person to receive that kind of attention and all those ideas that they didn't think about because they're inside the bubble. Mm -hmm. And I just love the process of allowing a community to help support an individual. And I think that's a revelation for some of us. Mm -hmm. I would include myself in there who are a little too rugged individualistic for their own good, and frankly suck at asking other people for help.
0: Yes, and yet are probably the first to volunteer to help another person.
1: Yeah, you know what's interesting? I used to belong to a group up here in San Francisco when I lived here in the 90s called the Brain Exchange started by a friend of mine, Lee Glickstein, who's actually in the Callings book. And the Brain Exchange was just a professional brainstorming group that met every Wednesday at an office building downtown San Francisco. And I swear to God, 150 people would often show up for those things. And only a few of them um, would be able to be a focal person. Most of them showed up because they like helping other people. Mm. Maybe they just like telling other people what to do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Providing support. Well, that is amazing to have some clarity and then have all of those recommendations for how to move forward. And that's important. Yeah. Because clarity without a plan can be as frustrating as not having the
1: clarity at all. Right. And that's another thing I hope to send people away with is at least a preliminary in how many ways can I list And ask people to generate it for themselves, because at that point, they've already gotten some clarity about something that's calling to them. And then they can kind of do a brainstorm on the spot for themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, right. I, I believe in sort of applied spirituality.
0: Well, it sounds like you're much more in tune with the ways that your higher self is calling to you.
1: I've definitely had a lot of practice at it. I mean, the self reflection piece, which I think is critical to the ability to even discern what you're called to do in any arena, not just vocational, could be relational calls or moral calls or service calls or whatever. Um, but it seems like the master skill there is self reflection. Mm-hmm. That takes courage to do that. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Because what if you turn on that receiver and the marching orders you hear? are in complete contradiction to the way you're currently living your life. Are these some of the
0: tools that you provide uh, in your workshop?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, uh, many of them are just simply in the, as it were, 20 questions that I ask them. You know, they're questions that people often never ask themselves, no less all in, say, one afternoon. The data that people generate for themselves in the workshops. I ask them to go through it. When they're done, answering all those questions, and then there's some dyad work and stuff. To go through it and circle any recurring themes. Hmm. And that gives them a sense of what are the recurring patterns in my answers to all these questions.
0: And then what do they do with those when they notice them coming up in their life?
1: In the workshops, we have people just simply break up into small groups and at least articulate it. I think there's something important about simply going public with it and not keeping it so close to your chest. And then we offer the opportunity for at least somebody to be brainstormed on the spot based on whatever it is they circled.
0: In Callings, in your first book, even in the very beginning, you talk about vital signs, vital signs and passion. Ah, yes. Which is a prelude for your second book, which came along in 2014, Vital Signs. Right. Did you know when you wrote Callings that you had a second book in you?
1: No, I did not. No, in fact, when Callings was done, I took a really long hiatus from writing. Uh, Actually, I would call it a moratorium because I had hit burnout. Mm. It was partly a function of how I wrote that book, which was like two years of 10 or 12 hour days, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend for work-life balance. (laughs) (laughs) But that's just the way I did it. And uh, I Did not do that with vital signs, but I I took a really long break. And I also went on the road for many, many years, uh, which I still am. I uh, took probably 10 years and I really just went around all around the country and other countries teaching workshops on the callings work before I came back to the second book. I would say the difference between the two of them callings generally people use around the, the vocational issues. Um, And it's about finding a passion. Vital Science is about the skill of passion. And it looks at other arenas, not just uh, vocational, which is primarily what I did in in Callings. So it's really uh, the original hardcover subtitle was The Nature and Nurture of Passion. Mm -hmm. So it was really just sort of a biography of passion in human affairs. And uh, I drew from every conceivable um, field of study to, to talk about it, um, philosophy and science and literature and everything else. So it's really just sort of a, um, a profile of, of passion as a stance or a skill. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, what inspired you to write it?
1: Um, I spent several years, when I finally came back to writing, uh, I spent several years just telling myself that all, you don't have to write a book, just write essays about subjects that are fascinating to you. And I spent six or nine months on each one of those. And they s- started to look suspiciously like chapters rather than just essays. But um, I dove into just different subjects that I was uh fascinated and compelled by at the time. And I figured just keep your mental myths off of this. It doesn't have to be a book. Just write what you need to write. Mm. Uh, And you'll look at it a few years down the road and see if there's any threads. And there was, and the thread was passion.
0: Mm. I love that.
1: That's how that one was written.
0: Oh, I love that. That's wonderful. What would you say is happening in your life right now?
1: Well, I recently, meaning November, um, followed a call that had been in my head for two years, which was started as just restlessness, which I could not identify, but it wouldn't go away. I took a couple of years to just simply try to untangle what the restlessness was about, and what it wanted from me, And I went on vision quests, and I took workshops, and I did uh, a lot of writing about it and talking to people. And I realized that a big part of that call was, it's time to move. It's time to get out of the South, Asheville, and uh, move someplace else. I needed a change of scenery. I just felt like I wanted to launch myself into the learning curve. Mm -hmm. You know, there's... Growth plateau, growth plateau, growth plateau. It's, it's a very common trajectory for human beings. And I think I'd been plateauing long enough. I was kind of hungry to toss myself out of the comfort zone, but in a, in a big way, not just a cosmetic change. I needed something tectonic. Moving from a town you've lived in for 15 years will definitely do that. So I think that's been a big thing. i am now moved out to Santa Cruz, California. And I just, a couple of weeks ago, moved into a new home. I've yet to see what happens next. It's already been quite a a learning curve and a a growth spurt for me. Not always easy. Definitely something that I've followed a call that started with restlessness and it propelled me into literally a a whole new state Mm. of mind.
0: Yes, that that journey from the restlessness or boredom, falling asleep at your desk. (laughs) Right. To making a change. It's a big step. What's the most important advice that you have for someone who's in a situation like that, that is beginning to feel restless or has Mm. been for a few
1: years? I would say, just for starters, honor it. Um, I understand the desire to run. Again, if Campbell is right, it's absolutely human nature to refuse calls, but honor that restlessness or that hunger or that longing or the lack, the sense of lack you might feel in your life or your work, and listen to it. I mean, everybody that I interviewed for callings had, it turned out, some kind of self-reflective practice of some kind, daily journaling, dream interpretation, contemplative reading let's see a meditation practice uh artwork done in the service of self-discovery belonging to some kind of a group whose members get together for the purpose of waking up so some self even therapy is a self-reflective practice but some some way that you get to turn on the receiver and listen to what's really going on down there and i think that's a That's a really important part of it is just be willing to um, enter into conversation with the part of you that's restless or bored or um, feeling like you're in a toxic job or even relationship. Um, It's just feeling like you're not living up to your potential. Um, Who was it? Abraham Maslow, the guy who coined the term self-actualization. Um, said that self-actualizing types, these are the types who tend to fulfill their potential, um, make the growth choice over the fear choice regularly. Sometimes the bar set pretty high, but there's something about the willingness to make the growth choice over the security choice at the least, no Mm. less the fear choice. There's something in there that's critical to having the kind of life it seems to me people want to live, which is one where they're not falling asleep On the job (laughs) Or, or at the switch you know they're they're plugged in and they're contributing and they're creative and they're exploring everybody who studies this stuff seems to think that the people who tend to flourish thrive the most over the course of their lives tend to score high in novelty seeking so getting yourself back into the learning curve Mm. that might look like even if it was just taking an art class or signing up for a salsa lesson or quitting your job and moving out to California
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah a lot of people are leaving we could have some more people come in
1: (laughs) that's right yeah they're now all going to Asheville it's cheaper
0: what's one thing you know now that you wish you knew before
1: oh my I think I wish and I'm still learning this one I wish I have always known to trust my intuitions and act on them rather than sidelining them because they don't fit what I want to have happen. And this goes as much for, say, relationship life as it does for vocational life. When I look back through those journals, as I've done every half a dozen years or so, I, I see this pattern going back to high school. Is not trusting my intuition, or literally sometimes my dreams. And the, the information is in there about what really matters to me, uh, what's really important to me. And it's incredible how often I have had to learn and relearn this lesson to trust what's in there, even when it doesn't match my fantasies or doesn't match my expectations. Or assumptions or what I just simply intend to have happen compared to what really needs to happen.
0: Yeah, that's that's a big one. I I see that one a lot, that Hmm. intuition doesn't match a goal. Right. Whether it's a financial goal or a career goal. Right. And they'll put it aside.
1: Right. And those have always come back to bite me. There's no setting those things aside because the human psyche is like the earth. It's a closed system in the sense that there's no away, as in running away from this stuff. There's no trash icon in there. Whatever you push down is just gonna come up someplace else in the system, through dreams, through body symptoms, through uh, feeling out of whack with yourself, you know, a kind of weird failure that follows you around in your life. It's, you can't push intuitions and dreams and body symptoms and callings Down and expect them to stay down. The best line I've ever read about systems theory comes from a poet named Jose Frias. He's a Mexican poet. He said, I tried to drown my sorrows with drink, but the damn things learned how to swim.
0: (laughs) That's funny. That's so true. Yeah. One last question. I'm kind of intrigued with this, and that is the relationship between calling and
1: purpose. Callings, in a sense, they're very much the same. I think they're really two sides of the same coin. I think that our sense of calling often brings us into what our purposes are. And I say purpose is plural. Because mm. again, I don't think there's one singular purpose. It's like your purpose in a, in a partnership is one kind of purpose. Your purpose in your work life is another. Your purpose in terms of your responsibility to having a body is another. So there are lots of kinds of purposes. The calls lead us to what our purposes are. What gets you up in the morning? That's a sense of purpose. You know, why should you be here tomorrow? You know, these are all kind of ways of stating purpose, I think. And I think uh, if we listen to our calls, they lead us toward mission and purpose and where specifically we're supposed to plug those sense of purpose in to the world.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. I think that's a great, uh, a great description. And it does remind me a little bit of of Esther Hicks and how she talks about emotions as that GPS, the emotional guidance system. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that, that's what I'm hearing in your description as well. Yeah.
1: I was also going to recommend a book to people, mm. uh, especially since it seems to me that almost everybody who comes into, say, my workshops are in transition of some kind or another or Feeling called toward toward that, and it's called transitions, and it's written by a guy named William Bridges. And how perfect is that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, the reason I recommend it is that his it's a book about how people make change, and the most elegant, user friendly book I have ever read on that subject. And I've le- read a lot of them. His take on how people make changes in three stages: something ends neutral zone something begins and this is the only book i have ever read five times at five different transition points in my own life because it so beautifully compassionately names it mm-hmm. and the reason i always recommend it to other people is typically the middle section because people typically want to skip over the neutral zone because it's so hard and uncomfortable to not know mm-hmm. they want to they want to fix from the ending to the new beginning next relationship next job you know, next uh, project, they don't submit themselves to the neutral zone, which is about not knowing and being in the not knowing phase. And sometimes having patience on the order of years for that. And so I just wanted to recommend that book because I've gotten so much out of it. And it so beautifully names the process people typically go through in making change.
0: Mm, that's great. I have that book myself, and I haven't read it in a while. Ah. So thank you for that reminder. Yeah,
1: it's wonderful.
0: <laughs> Is there anything else you would like us to know about you, about what's next?
1: Hmm. Um, no, it's more just a feeling of something I want to say to anybody who might be feeling um, that they have a call, that they're hungry for a call, that they've been ignoring a call, <laughs> But that's the sense, if I can use this word, of the soul wanting to come into its full fruition. Honor your hunger and honor your thirst. And just to know that life is so incredibly rich. And it's so easy to hold ourselves back from all of that richness you know, because of fear and routine and habit and responsibility and uh, boredom and whatever all the reasons people run from their callings and just to know that uh, life is incredibly rich. And as they say, most poor suckers are starving. You know, Mm -hmm. life is a banquet and there's something about that. I don't mean to sound pat, but this so much richness on the other side of the attachment to security alone or the, the fears that we feel there's so much aliveness that I think is what people are hungry for when they sign up for workshops like callings workshops Mm -hmm. Um, and to allow yourself to love what you love
0: that's wonderful thank you so much i'm so delighted that you came on the show and gave us some highlights from your two books and i'm going to put links to your two books and also your workshops and your website and some of the videos that i found which are wonderful
1: all right wonderful I'm Cinder
0: Niemela, and you've been listening to the Inspired Wisdom Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope these conversations illuminate your path to your highest potential. For show notes and links to resources mentioned during today's episode, please go to inspiredwisdom.us. You can also follow Inspired Wisdom on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, design a fulfilling and prosperous life, that engages your talents and passions.